Our scripture text today is Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19. This is God's word. Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither did he eat or drink. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, first question. Are there any um, Spotify fans out there today? Yeah, every, you should all be raising your hands, every single one of you. It's, it's any music, thank, thank you, it's any music you can dream of for free. Okay, that's what Spotify is. Just, just note that. I have thrown away every CD I own because of Spotify, and it's, it's amazing. I don't know if you followed this uh, this past week, but they actually went public as a company publicly traded as a company. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, there are all kinds of people trying to project, you know, what, what's the stock value going to be? And uh, after their first week, it, apparently they are worth about $30 billion now. So that was their opening week, which is not bad. Um, 
especially like Spotify, if, if most, you can't get most, if any of your users to actually pay for your services. So uh, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. I'm sure that they are pretty impressed with themselves, and they, and they should be. That's an amazing accomplishment. A hundred million or so users worldwide. It's not, a company has not been around for too long. Uh, but you know what? Even with all of that, they've, they've got nothing on the early church. Nothing. If you uh, have been with us the last several weeks, we've been in the book of Acts, kind of looking at how did this early Christian movement, how did it get started, how did it get going? And we've hinted at this several times, I think, throughout this series, but just to kind of put it out there, uh, from, a, from a, like a, se- a secular historical standpoint, uh, the, the rise of the Christian movement uh, is one of the most difficult things for, for historians to, to describe how it happened. Uh, without, any, without any supernatural help at all, it's very difficult to understand how the early church grew the way that it did. Uh, you, as far as we can tell, these numbers aren't perfect, but Christianity basically went from a few thousand in AD 40, which is kind of the period we're in right now, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, to about 34 million by AD 350. And it is today far and away the largest faith tradition uh, uh, practiced all around the world at 2.2 billion people and growing. Uh, and, and many of those folks are in places where they're actively persecuted for being Christian. So, I mean, th- th- there's, these are pretty good numbers that we're dealing with here. And I, and this isn't just downloading an app and using it occasionally. This is, the, this is a worldview, lifestyle, countercultural change that we're talking about. It, this kind of growth, in that sense, is basically unprecedented in human history. It did not happen before that moment, and it has not happened since. And, you know, you think about it, there isn't a social movement, private industry government entity in the world that wouldn't kill for that kind of growth and longevity, right? So what was their secret? What did these early Christians know? How did this church grow? What, what do we need to learn? Well, the answer, all of that was, you know, prelim. The answer is here in Acts 9, the text that we just heard read. The, the, uh, how, it's in Saul's story. How did Saul of Tarsus, the chief persecutor of the early church, become St. Paul the Apostle? the most influential uh, preacher and theologian in Christian history. How did, how did that transformation... Here's, here's what 2.2 billion people have found to be true, and here's what Paul found to be true in the story we're going to read, is, is this, is that Christianity can do, it can actually do what, what really nothing else can. You know what it is? Uh, Christianity uh, changes people. It changes people. Yeah, it really is that simple. It profoundly, fundamentally changes people. Yeah, right? Early Christians, they didn't just join the movement or sign up for the newsletter or, you know, they, 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 they became part of this movement. They were changed. They were, they were fundamentally, eternally changed. And we, we have an old word, it's a churchy word for that, but I think it's still a good word, and it's conversion. Christianity converts people. And you know, we all want change. So maybe some of you are here uh, because you were here for Easter last week and we didn't scare you too much and you decided to come back. Or or maybe you're here and you've been following Jesus your entire life uh, and you you know what this conversion thing is. But I, I, I would guess that everyone here 
We are all discontent with who we are today, right now. We all want change, don't we? We want transformation. We want this. So how do we get it? Where does this come from? Well, I, let's, let's take a look. If you, if, you haven't, uh, if you brought your Bible and you haven't turned there yet, um, turn to the book of Acts. Uh, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in your New Testament. Chapter 9, uh, we're going to start again in verse 1. And just look at this story and see what, what does this tell us about transformation and change? What does this tell us about, about what is truly the Christian faith? Um, in verse 1, if, while you're turning there, we see that Paul, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to, you know, the name in the story is Saul. It's the same as Paul. I'm going to say Paul so that I don't confuse myself. Uh, so just bear with me there. You see that Paul, at the beginning of this, is on his way to Damascus. And the reason he's going there is to persecute Christians. And if you were here when we preached chapter 7 of Acts, uh, whenever that was, uh, you know that not too long ago in the story, uh, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was killed for his faith. He was stoned to death. And Luke has this little throwaway line in that story, if you remember. He says something like, uh, and while this was happening, there was a young guy there named Saul approving of Stephen's execution. Kind of an, he kind of has an authoritative place there in that story. And you, you don't hear about him again until right here. So now you know why that was there. And, and, and this persecution of, of, has only gotten worse since that moment of, of, of Christians. And Paul, in particular, has gotten really, really good at this persecution thing. He's the best that they have now. Uh, he, uh, in verse 1, Luke says, who wrote Acts, he says, Paul was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is a terrifying dude. And he's been basically going house to house in Jerusalem, looking for Christians, throwing people in prison, executing them as for, for blasphemy. I, I don't know. He probably has a network of spies. He, he probably has leverage on key people to get information. I mean, he's a master at this. He's good at it. He's so good, in fact, that he decides Jerusalem isn't enough. He says, I've got people to take care of Jerusalem now. And as the early Christians were persecuted in Jerusalem, they fled to nearby cities, cities like Damascus. And Paul wants to go get them now too. So he gets permission from the high priest in Jerusalem in the form of, of a letter with his signature to go to Damascus and to go to the synagogues there and basically kind of co-opt the synagogues and say, you work for me now to find these Christians. This is like the FBI showing up at a police crime scene. It's like, hey, this, thanks for your help. This is my investigation now. Okay, that's what Paul is doing. And so off he goes and, and with his entourage, and he is ready to snuff out this whole Christianity thing from the face of the planet, one city at a time. And, I, you know, who knows? I, I, maybe he's daydreaming about his, his first move when he gets to Damascus. Who am I going to talk to? What am I going to do? And the way Luke tells it, suddenly, in the midst of that, this, this light shines all around him. And it was so jarring, it, it knocks him to the ground. He falls down. I, I don't know if you have ever been in a car accident where you're rear-ended. It's one of the most unnerving feelings in the world uh, because, you know, one second you're zoning out to NPR or whatever, and the next, it's like this invisible fist just hits your entire body in one moment. Uh, anybody, it's, it's weird. It's a really, I, I think that's something like what Paul felt in this moment. 
he, he's just on the ground. He can't even explain how he got. And suddenly, Paul, he hears a voice. In verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, stop there for a second. Okay, this is kind of one of the first things I want us to see here uh, about how Christianity converts people and why it converts people, um, how it changes people. And here it is. If, if you really want to change, you need Jesus. <laughs> right? It's not as profound as maybe as I wanted it to be. Okay, here... Uh, <laughs> Here's, why, here's what I mean. Okay, here's why that's important. So Paul was just about the most religious person you'll ever meet in your life. He was a Pharisee. Uh, these are some of the most religious, zealous, devout, morally pure people in, in all of Israel who were themselves a people known for their moral purity. These uh, folks, they kept the Old Testament better than anybody. They were upstanding citizens. They were law-abiding incredibly popular among the people. And Paul is the up-and-comer. I mean, he is, he is the leader. He's, he's one of the best. He's the future of the Pharisees. That's what he represents. And Paul was one of those people um, who, if you were a good Jewish family in Israel at the time and you had children, you want them to grow up to be him. There's hardly a more religious and moral person in the empire at the time than Paul. But he needed to be converted. And if he needs to be converted, if he needs Jesus, then everybody needs Jesus. The change we want is not about being a, a good person, not primarily. Okay, Paul was, is already, at the beginning of the story, a person of more integrity and consistency and religion than I would wager anyone in this room. Certainly more than me. But being a, a good person is not the point. It's not enough. That's not fundamentally what Christianity is about or what it does nor is believing hard enough enough. I'm probably hear this, you know, some people think Christianity is just about being a good person. I probably hear this one a little bit more these days, which is this concept that what, what, what leads to human flourishing, what makes you a good person, is that you believe really hard about something. And it doesn't matter what that something is, as long as you believe it and you live according to it, right? Believe with all your heart. That's what makes you a, a good, worthwhile person. But that is... That is not true. That is not true. Paul, uh, his example, that's why his example is so powerful. He, he had more religion and zeal than any of us do. But that's, that's not enough. That's not the point. Okay, maybe you've heard, let me illustrate this. You, maybe you've heard this before. Um, but imagine you're, you're, you're falling off of a cliff and you reach out and you grab a branch kind of at the last second before you begin to fall hoping that it's, it's strong enough to save you, right? That's why you reach out. Now, whether you are really optimistic about it saving you does not matter, does it? It doesn't matter if in the split second that you reach out and you grab this, you think to yourself, you know what? I feel pretty good about this. I think I've got a good shot. Or if you say, I think I'm dead. There's no way this is going to hold me. All that matters is, did you grab the right branch? Paul believed something. He believed it with all of his life. He, he arranged everything in his life around what he believed. He had all his chips on the table, but he was wrong. And it was killing him, and it was killing people around him. That's why, think of it, when Jesus appears and speaks to Paul in verse 4, what, Jesus does not say, Saul, Saul, clean up your act. 
you're not good enough. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, um, believe harder. You lack faith. He doesn't, what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you reject me? Why do you ignore me? This is Jesus speaking. Paul didn't lack morality or faith or integrity. He lacked Jesus. How about you? I mean, there's another way to put, you know, some people are good people. They make all the right choices and they stay on the right side of the law and they run their businesses and their families well. And some people are bad people. They're immoral, they make bad choices, they're troubled. And some people are religious people, they're spiritual people, and some people could care less about religion and spirituality. Some people come to church every week. Some people are only at church when someone drags them there or they never come at all, but all of them, each one of them, doesn't matter, they need Jesus. That's the, this, is the, this is fundamental to the Christian faith. What you need is not more moral training or more success, religious success or pedigree, The change that you want is not found in a new social caste or in your family's last name. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. And if Paul needed Jesus, then we do too. Or we'll never truly change. We'll never have a story like this. Never. But that's that's not the only thing. Okay, so we need, yes, we need, you need Jesus, but also you need the resurrected Jesus. Which, I know that sounds weird. Let me explain um, Paul, didn't, Paul didn't just meet the historical Jesus. He didn't just read about Jesus or study Jesus. He, he met the resurrected Jesus. Okay, look at verse 5. Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now think about it this way. So Paul probably knew Jesus before he was crucified. They're about the same age. They spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. All the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was incredibly popular in his ministry, drew lots of people. You know, Paul probably uh, saw him, I have to imagine, maybe even heard him preach and teach. Maybe they even interacted. I, I, I don't know. But despite all of that, whatever that was, Paul still became the chief enemy of early Christianity. It was not enough that Paul knew Jesus lived. That is not Christianity. That's not conversion. Conversion is not acknowledging that Jesus was a real historical figure, yes. He existed. Paul isn't changed until he realizes not not that Jesus once lived, but that he still lives. That he's risen from the dead. And I've I've met him. He's right there. Now, there are are a couple implications here I want to unpack about what does it mean to, to meet this resurrected Jesus. Okay, first... In that moment, Paul, Paul had to accept the resurrection intellectually. He had to think about it. Okay? He, Paul encountered the risen Jesus, yes, but that doesn't mean he, he understood that or believed it right away. He had to think about it. You know, Luke um, tells this story in the book of Acts three times. And when an author in the ancient world does that, right, they don't have a lot of paper. So that's a lot of um, screen time. Why does he do, why does he, it's here in chapter 9, it's in, 20, in chapter 22, it's in chapter 26. Why did Luke do that? Well, here's what I think. I think in Luke's mind, right, this Acts is written in part to persuade people to the faith. He, he thought this story had such apologetic force that he needed to repeat it. And here's what I think. I think he, he wants us to see that Paul had every reason to disbelieve 
what he saw that day. As powerful as it was, he had every reason to disbelieve it, but was convinced and changed anyway. Think, I mean, think about it. To, to convert to the faith that he opposed, but that would be embarrassing. It would make him a target. It would ruin his life. It would ruin his life as he understood it in that moment. Ruined. But Paul is so intellectually compelled that Jesus rose from the dead. He couldn't deny it. He couldn't deny it, even though he probably wanted to. So Luke, make sure you don't read the story and miss the point. Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus on, on the Damascus Road. He truly did. He was convinced of that. Now, I'm not sure that you're all bought in. because I, We often look at a story like this, right? This dramatic story. Um, and we think, well, sure, I believe, in, I believe in Jesus if he showed up on my morning commute in my car. I'd, right? Sure, you'd, you'd be stupid. Anybody would believe in Jesus if this happened to them, if he confronted them uh, on the road to Damascus. But think about that. Is that true? I, I don't think so. Paul, after this happened, think about it. He could have arrived in Damascus and he was blind and he had to be carried in because he was so confused and dazed. He could have simply said, man, that was really bad heat stroke, guys. Whew, that was weird. He could have said, okay, change of plan. Take, take me to the, the nearest uh, shrink in town because I've, I've been stressed. I've got issues, clearly. I'm not healthy. He, he could have said, I knew breakfast tasted funny. How much, you know, how much easier it would have been for him to explain this away? How much easier it would have been for his life? And we do this all the time. Okay, let me, um, let me give you an example. I, I, use, I use this sometimes, uh, but it's still true. It's still true of me. Um, you know, when, you're, when I'm driving in my car and I hear a funny sound in the engine, I don't, I don't pull over and pop the hood and look at what's going on, Right? I turn the music up. I don't want to know what's going on in the car. Right? The, 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 I'm overwhelmed at what is possible. And so I'm like, you know, I, I don't want to know. Right? That's a small example. I could give you bigger ones. We do this. We do this. How much more Paul, who is liable to lose everything, he had every reason to doubt this, to say, no, there's got to be another explanation. There's got to there's be another explanation. But instead, he, he, he examined the evidence, and I think he talked to the people who were with him. What did you see? What did you hear? And he concluded, okay, Jesus rose from the dead, and if Jesus rose, then Jesus is Lord, and if Jesus is Lord, then my life has to change profoundly. Okay, when we encounter the risen Lord, there's different ways we do that, whether we're reading his word or we're speaking with a Christian friend or a family member or we're encountering a beauty in the world that we can't explain on our own or we experience doubts in our own choices that we made and the consequences of those choices or we examine the evidence then and there in that moment. Don't, don't suppress it. Don't ignore it. Think about it. Follow it where it takes you. you I, I think you'll find Jesus there. Conversion doesn't happen until you think about Christianity. It's not just an emotional process. It's, a, it's an intellectual one. This is what I'm trying to say. It's an intellect, it's, it, it, you need the resurrected Jesus, which means you have to accept his resurrection intellectually. 
Okay, you can't accept what the mind rejects. But the second thing, um, Paul's encounter with, with Jesus, his resurrected Jesus, was a process that will look different for everyone. This is the second implication I want you to see. So Paul's conversion started way before this moment. I know it's hard for us to see that. You really get that in another telling of the story in Acts 26. Uh, Paul is speaking. He's giving a little bit more detail about what happened on this, in this uh, event. And he, Paul's talking to someone. He says that Jesus said to him, And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads. Now, what in the world is a goad? <laughs> what, is, what is Jesus talking about? Well, a goad is, a, is an ancient um, shepherding tool, like a stick, basically. And it was used to prod an animal along or keep them away from danger. So Jesus is saying, Paul, long before this moment, I've been, I've been goading you. I've been, I, I've been preparing you. I've been in your life to get your attention, and you've been ignoring me. You've, you've been uh, turning away from me. It's made your life a lot worse. It's hard for you to kick against me in your life. See, Jesus is already at work in your life right now, and that's what this means. Every person in this room, he is alive and well in your life. There's a resurrected Lord in your life right now. And in that sense, no one's, no one's conversion or change is, is sudden, even though it looks like it. I get it. There's always preparation. There's always a process. And it's hard to know exactly what that looked like for Paul. He doesn't give us a ton of detail in this story, but, but it's not hard to imagine. Maybe, maybe Paul struggled with, that, with uh, guilt about who he was. Maybe he struggled with the idea that he, he presented one version of himself outside he built a reputation and a career on that, but he was actually a very different person inside. He knew he lived a double life. He's a, does that sound familiar? Or maybe uh, he had doubts and fears, serious doubts and fears, doubts about his ability to, to handle life, to handle his emotions, I don't know, fears about getting hurt or abandoned by family or friends, fears of failure and rejection in his work. Okay, Does any of that sound familiar to you? Or maybe he had pain and loss in his life, incredible pain and loss, that he couldn't, he couldn't pray away. His faith couldn't move him on. It was, it was stuck in this place. You see, God uses hard things like that to get our attention, to make us more open to new answers and new experiences. Um, he's preparing us. And, and the more we ignore those kinds of things, our doubts and our fears and our pains, the worse it tends to get. Because they're intended to drive you to Jesus. That's Paul's experience. See, this, this all means, here's why I say all that. Is that the, the God of the universe is working in your life right now, whether you acknowledge him or not, or you know him or not, whether you want to know him or not, he is, the, he is, one, he is getting your attention because he loves you. That's profound. Think about it this way. So when Jesus talks to Paul, and we often miss this, he says his name twice. Did you pick up on that? He says, Saul, Saul. Two times. When we hear that um, in English, it sounds like exasperation. 
That's what you say to your roommate or your spouse when they keep doing something wrong, right? You say, honey, honey, no, that's, that's not right. Let me show you. Um, that's not what it meant here. To repeat a name like this two, two times, it was a very personal, longing way to talk to someone. It, was, it wasn't said when you were tired of dealing with them. It was, it was said when from the bottom of your heart you wanted them to hear every word you were about to say. Like when you warn a friend that they're about to do something you think is, is, is wrong or bad. It, it comes from a place of profound care and love and compassion. And Paul heard that. In fact, that's the first thing he ever hears Jesus say to him. He hears his name, his own name twice. And he mentions it in every retelling of the story in the book of Acts, every single time. Here's why I think he did that. Paul understood that though he was the most ardent skeptic and the most violent persecutor and the chief offender against the Lord of the universe, Jesus was still pursuing him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Don't you know that I love you? Don't you know that I've already been in your life? Don't you know that I'm wooing you to myself? Don't you know that? Can't you see it? And when you begin to see your life through that lens, through the lens of God's care and love and pursuit of you, if you can begin to, the power of conversion and change is there. That can change a life like nothing else can. And, and once you, you see that you need Jesus and you need the resurrected Jesus, then you need the third principle, okay? You're ready for a new life. You need a new life from Jesus, a new life. This is probably one of the most powerful parts of Paul's story. It's probably why Luke includes it, is this radical new life that Paul gets. You can't get a more radical change. And you see it right away. Look at verse 5. After Jesus asks Paul why he's persecuting him, Paul says, Who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise now, enter the city, and I will be, I will, uh, you will be told what you are to do. So Paul meets Jesus, and Jesus immediately starts ordering him around. He says, Get up, go to town, await further instructions, I will be in touch. And Paul, just like that, his life is radically changed forever. The man who was going to Damascus to end Jesus' church, to wipe out his people, is now sent into Damascus by Jesus to become the most catalytic leader in church history ever. So when you meet Jesus, part of the way you, really, you know you really met him is, is your life changes forever. That's because he doesn't just want to meet us, he wants to change us. He wants to take your, what I'm, what I'm gonna, your whole vocation he wants to take everything you are and have and do. Everything. Your job, your gifts, your flaws, your relationships, your family, your career, your hopes and dreams, your, your fears and failure. He wants to take all of that and turn it into new life. And really, the rest of the Christian life, basically, is learning to submit to that direction. That's all it is. It's giving him access to your life more than anybody else. And this is one of the most powerful truths about Christian conversion. When people change and you see it, when they really change, their whole person, their attitude, their outlook, their actions change, it's shocking, isn't it? It's powerful. It's very powerful. But it, it actually can't be done alone. 
this new life, this change that we want, this transformation, that it needs a community. Okay, this is our last point, is that you, you need the church. Jesus, here's, here's why. Jesus could have done anything with Paul after this encounter on the Damascus Road. He could have done anything. He could have picked him up in a whirlwind, which he's already done in the book of Acts, and transported him to Rome or wherever he wanted. It's the center of power and influence, and he could have had him preach and teach there from the very get-go, but that's decades away for Paul. That will happen. But that's years away. What does Jesus do? What is the first thing Jesus do when this guy meets him? He says, go to church. Here's how he says it. He finds a church leader, Ananias. In verse 11, he says this to Ananias. Now rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. He's seen you. Come in and lay hands on him that he might regain his sight. Why does Jesus go find this random Christian to go get into Paul's life. Why, why, does, why does he need, in other words, why does he need the church to go finish the, the job with Paul? He says, you're going to go. You're going to lay hands on him. Because, well, here's why. Because from now on, the church is him. Look, look at this. When, when he first confronted Paul, Jesus doesn't say, um, hey, Paul, why are you persecuting my people? Paul, why are you persecuting my church? He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Jesus, he, he so closely identifies with his church in this story. It, it, it's his representative on earth from now on. And to live this converted life, if you really want it, you need the church. That's what Jesus is showing here. He's saying, if you want to encounter me, the most tangible way to do that is now through my people. To know and follow me, says Jesus, is to know and belong to my church. And notice, this is not the, the universal abstract church. It's not what Jesus, he says, go to Damascus. There's a guy named Ananias. Go to that church. Those people, specific people, Paul, you need them. You need them right now. And just to hammer home the point, Luke, Luke includes this. Ananias, when he, when he goes to pray uh, with Paul, he lays his hands on him in verse 17. He lays his hands on him, and then, and then his blindness is healed. Now remember, uh, Luke wrote two books in the New Testament. One is Acts, and one is called Luke, and it's his story about Jesus. It's a two-part uh, volume, two-volume work. And in Luke's gospel, okay, in the first, in the prequel to Acts, Almost every time Jesus heals someone, Luke points out, he goes out of his way to say that he, Jesus laid hands on them. Not every time, but almost every time. Ananias does the same thing. And it's like Luke is saying, okay, from now on, Jesus' compassion and healing and outreach and welcoming and love comes through the church, his representatives. And it's not just a place where healing happens, it's where forgiveness and acceptance happen too. Did you see Ananias' first words to Paul? Did you see what Ananias said to, the, to the, the persecutor of his church and the murderer, no doubt, of Ananias' friends? Ananias knows who he is. He knows people that he's killed. He knows. What does he say? He says, Brother Saul. Brother. He says, Welcome to the family. Anyone who has met the risen Lord and follows him 
no matter what he has done, no matter what she has done, he is a brother, she is a sister of mine. Welcome. That's the first thing the church ever says to Paul. What do you think that that, what did those words do to Paul, you think? How did that impact him? Do you think a day went by that he didn't think about that? See, I think, and I don't know if he could have articulated it this way, but my, my, my hunch is in that moment, he, he thought something like this. I am more evil and immoral and wrong than I ever thought possible. I was so wrong about everything. But I am more loved and forgiven and accepted, accepted than I could have ever hoped. And that statement right there, it, it can change anybody. Anybody. No matter where you are this morning in your life, in your faith, if you're on your own road to Damascus and you're not thinking about Jesus at all, he's, he is pursuing you. He's calling your name. Saul, Saul, won't you come to me? He's, he's ready to meet you and to change you and to love you. He's ready. Are we listening? Are we ready? Let's pray. Father, I don't know where everybody is here this morning in their relationship with you, in their conversation with you. But God, I am confident that you are pursuing and wooing and drawing every one of us in. God, make us a church that responds to your call. May we hear your voice calling to each one, not just to all of us, but to each one of us, saying, don't you know I love you? Don't you know I accept you? Come to me, and I can change your life forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.